0: My guest today is an ex-murder detective. He's been doing doing this for the last 30 years at Essex Police Force, and he's experienced everything, whether it's investigating countless criminal cases, horrific murders. I mean, a lot of different things he's seen. And I saw a couple of his interviews, and his expertise is interviewing the person that's being committed of the murder or the crime to gather intel to see if this person's guilty or innocent, or he needs to go gather more intel and I think there's a lot of uh, we can learn from that in any career you're in, maybe even in your personal life. So having said that, Paul, Mallory, thank you so much for being a guest on Taman.
1: Thank you very much for having me this afternoon.
0: So question for you. When did you wake up and say, I want to be a murder detective?
1: Well, I come from a line of cops. My dad was a cop. My brother was a cop. Um, my uncles, my cousins, we're cops. You know, that's, if you, we have the most boring Christmas dinners in the world. Um, you sit what's it? What's it look like? What like do
0: that? you guys do? Tell stories to each other?
1: Oh man, it's so boring as well. You know, it's, we call it swinging the blue lamp in this country, and um, and and everybody knows everyone. You know, I, I live in a county which is different to the states. There's 1.7 million people live here, um, we're next to London, so the demographics are really, um, you know, very very diverse. However, within the police service, you've got 3,000 cops plus support staff. And everyone knows everyone, so my bad new people. I, when I first joined the police in 86, 87, I was working with cops that my dad had joined with. So I couldn't do anything uh, without them knowing. So, as an example, March 31st, 1989, my first major investigation, and I'll come back to when did I want to be a murder yeah. but my first major investigation, a, a bank manager had been kidnapped. Um, I'd just gone onto a plainclothes department as a, uh, a an assistant a temporary detective and this bank manager been kidnapped his family been kidnapped and he's been taken to a bank to empty the vault and i walk into the office and the boss sits there and he says um mr maliri so i said yes sir so i know your father i said yeah yeah, yeah yeah he said um can you cook i said yeah i can cook he said you want to be on my team so yeah i want to be on your team he said well then you can cook me breakfast for the whole team tomorrow so i had to cook big English breakfast, you know, sausage, egg, bacon, beans, the whole lot for the whole, that was part of my acceptance. And there was 25 people there or thereabouts. And I knew then to be part of a professional team because to be on a murder squad, it's not about one person. You watch all the glorification of how somebody solved the murder. You know, this isn't um, 1890s. This isn't Jack the Ripper. This isn't Sherlock Holmes. This is one team, but a team that's made up of so many different people. I don't know how that correlates in the U.S., but you can't do these things on your own in the U.K. And I knew from that point onwards that all I wanted to deal with with was major crime. That was was my life.
0: Now, now, let me ask you this. So yesterday I'm interviewing uh, a uh, former um, sniper. He had the longest shot. And I think he's from Britain, by the way. His name was Craig Harrison, I believe, right? Yesterday's interview. Craig Harrison. And uh, he had 80 confirmed kills. And I have, I've interviewed other snipers before, and I was in the military before, so I've met snipers, and they typically have a very similar DNA. They're loners. They're good being by themselves. They're a little bit quiet. Some people think they're shy, but they're very observant of what's going on around them. So you can pretty much, you know, map out the patterns and the similarities between different between ten different snipers, right? Absolutely. Did you notice a pattern with folks who are great murder detectives what 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 uh, similarities do you guys have
1: i I think um if you've got an analytical mind and the ability to talk to people then you can you can then start to fit in but the you have to look at the 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 minute detail you have to understand what actually matters you have to have um, a, a passion for knowledge and that's what the common denominator is for murder squad detectives, certainly in the UK. I've worked with some of the finest um, and I don't want to be blown up their backside, but you know, some of the finest detectives in the in the country and I've been privileged to do that and I've done some great jobs. And but we all come from the same cut from the same cloth. But the fact is the reason we, we, we did it or do it or the you know the reason why they're still doing it is because they want to find out why that person's been killed. Why they want to bring the right person to justice. They want to understand how we've got into this situation where there's a body in the mortuary and a post-mortem is going to take place. They want to bring the closure about for the family. And this is what it's all about. It's about the the focus on the family and how they can be dealt with and, um, and the service that they provide. And I, I think that that's the biggest asset. I,
0: I want to go a little bit deeper. I mean I appreciate that, but I want to go a little bit deeper. This is what I think, and, and correct me and say, no, nope, that's irrelevant. And if yes, tell me which one of these is the most valuable asset in your world, in your industry. So h- h- the importance of uh, 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 gathering intel, which is researching to me. You're good at researching, so when you're sitting down with somebody, you've asked all the right questions from the right people, you have intel. Number two is human nature, knowing how to deal with the person you're talking to, where you lead to be trusting and somewhat understanding, maybe a little bit of levity to bring the guards down where they're willing to sit down and talk to you, Uh, maybe a a bit of humility where you're not too cocky and arrogant because they shut down when you're too cocky and arrogant and you're pushing them too hard. Which one of those, like, I want to know things like that. What's the most valuable quality of the best person in your field? The
1: ability to communicate. But communication is a two-way thing. It's as well, as well as using this, it's about using these. So it's about talking and listening and being able to glean information as you go along and be dynamic in the way that you, you work. You can't always... There's no prescription around um, or menu around dealing with murders. That said, there is a guidebook which... It literally starts at point A and point, and goes through to um, point Z. But you have to be a free thinker, but you have to have that ability to communicate and engage. Because if you can't engage with the suspects, with the families, um, you, with the, uh, we have here, you have a DA's office, we have the Crown Prosecution Service. If you can't engage, whether that be in an oral way or whether it be in a written way, you're not going to succeed and you've got no place in you know, in that particular job because you need to be able to do that at the lowest and at the highest level because you will be dealing with the lower end of society with in, in some cases, but you'll also be going to the upper end of the market when you're dealing with some families, the judges. I mean, the judges are very well esteemed in this country in the same way they are there. They're not voted in here. Um, but You know, you've got to be able to communicate. And that's the greatest skill that murder squad detectives have.
0: Let's let's uh, let's let's, uh, you know, unpack that. So you're saying the lower end of society. So to be able to communicate with the lower end of society, give us a few uh, uh, approaches. You got to take that works and what doesn't work in communicating with the lower end of society, because I'm assuming these murderers, they they don't have to really talk to you. Right. They don't have to tell you anything. Right. They Do they have to tell you anything? You have to figure out where to gather the intel from them, right?
1: But but you see, social deprivation is, you know, it's it's rife in your country, it's rife in our our country. So, for instance, you've got an area that's particularly poor, um, somebody gets killed, and the residents do not want to engage. They don't want to engage because they're seen as being police informants. It's about that the communication to bring them along with you and give them the appropriate reassurance that they're going to get that support. Now, some people we have a witness protection scheme here, same as you do in the US. Um, some people need to go on that, but actually, it's around that community liaison and making sure that you're getting the the right vibes across to the, the the community leaders, if you like. And I think that that's and that's particularly difficult at the moment in in this country with some of the um, some of the popular press. The police are getting a really good figuratively speaking, but they're getting a good kick at the moment from the media. And it's about um, offering that public reassurance and that customer focus. So, but that goes right across the board. So it could be, you know, a kid's died of a drug overdose. They come from a poor background. It's about making sure that the parents get the best service because people should not be written off just because where they come from or what their social status, you know, but popular society would write a a lot of people off and that is totally out of order. That's so wrong. But the police, I think they're very skilled in it despite what is said by a lot of the media. They're very skilled in, in, in what they do.
0: So, so going back to it, lower end of society, when you're dealing with the lower end of society and specifically let's focus on a person that is being accused, charged with a murder. Okay. And Mm -hmm. if you're speaking to somebody who potentially just took someone's life, and they're qualified to be part of the lower end of society what method of communication works with them and what doesn't
1: so it's very difficult because in this country in the same way as, as the states they have the rights of silence so to engage with somebody when they're sitting across the table they've just killed somebody it was a, we dealt with a guy called justin chant he was the victim of a murder um he'd been bullied he'd been harangued he'd, he'd gone through so many different things you weren't ever going to negotiate with with his killer. There wasn't a chance. It wasn't. You had to prove that one hundred percent because he wasn't ever going to talk to us. He, you know, he can ma- maintain his right of silence, and um, and the police have to prove. And the police should have to prove it as well. In the same way as as anything that you know, it should be in this country. In the same there, it's beyond reasonable doubt. You can't negotiate with someone like that. But there are other people that you dealt that I've dealt with where. Actually, they've got a conscience as to what they've done. They've killed a partner. So um, I I can't defend what they've done. I can empathize through the situation they've gone through. So let me ask you a question now. What do adults argue about? As as couples, what do adults argue about?
0: Money, family, kids, sex.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So when you're sitting across the table from somebody who has killed their husband because every night they've demanded rough sex with them, that they've beaten them about, that they've knocked the kids about you can't sympathise with them but you can actually understand where they're coming from and if you can get that across and start to to help them with the process because they're going to jail, make no mistake and it could be that they go to jail for murder they go to jail for manslaughter as it is in this country if you can start to empathise and start to unpack what they've done then that gives them a greater opportunity the lawyers wouldn't agree the lawyers are there to make them, you know, no comment, no comment, no comment. They're not going to talk to us, but it's about the question set and the way that we prepared ourselves in order to interview them. And that's, that's what you need to do. What, you what's your set. open-ended?
0: So, so walk me through one. Give me a story and walk me through what you opened up with. What question did you... So give me the setting. I'm sitting down with this guy who's being accused of X, Y, Z. He's this age. He's this. He's that. And here's how the conversation started about. Give, give me an example. Right.
1: So, Danielle Jones, she's still missing. She went missing in June 2001. Her body has never been found, Okay, Her uncle has been subsequently convicted, and he's still in jail. He's been there 20 years. He won't tell anybody where that murder is. I was selected to interview him uh, with a colleague. And the opening gambit was, basically, this is your niece, Stuart. This is your niece. Uh, Why? Tell us what's happened and you, you start to build into the relationship between him and his niece and how you know, have, have things have gone wrong, that's, that's the only way you can do it. You've got to take it from the front. What you'd actually do is you'd, you'd ask people to explain themselves. Tell me something about yourself. That's how you would start the conversation. The problem is that not everybody can answer that question because – they just can't. They don't know. I could say to you, tell me something about yourself and you tell me your full story because you're an open book. But some people don't work like that. So you have to pick the pages apart. You have to look at each chapter of the story, how how that particular relationship would have developed, how it's gone from one point to another point, And basically, where is the body of Danielle Jones? And, and that remains, her body's still outstanding. And I, I only, you know, I wish to God that he'd just tell everybody where the body is, but... I'm not sure that he, he ever will.
0: Give me a successful one. So that's an unsuccessful one where you guys weren't able to get uh, uh, the information you wanted. Give me a story of somebody that you never thought it was going to be happening. They were not open-minded, but you were able to get the information. How and why?
1: Right. So um, a lady called Hannah Phillips, she was um, an elderly lady. And she lived with her, I believe it was her, um, her daughter and a son-in-law. And there was an argument in the house. She has, it turns out, been pushed over, banged her head. She's died. This guy has wrapped her body up in a tarpaulin, a big plastic sheet, taken her out into a rural wooded area. Before he actually took her there, he went and found a suitable area. He dug a hole um, deep enough to bury the body. He wrapped her up in this um, tarpaulin. Tied her up, put her in a wheelbarrow, wheeled her out to his Volvo motor car, took the body out to this wooded area and buried her. Now, there were there were a catalogue of lies that were told because they reported her as being missing, uh, so on and so forth. Myself and uh, a guy called Paul Thomas, smashing fella, uh, we were detailed to go and arrest and interview this chap. We go and arrest him because he's saying nothing. I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't done anything wrong. But, and he was very, very, he wasn't open to, to it at all. You know, no, 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 no. By the time we got him back into the custody suite and we saw, he then opened up, he realised that what, what had gone on um, was wrong. He, he needed, his conscience started to kick in. And what he actually did was he identified where the body was buried. He took us there. He put, um, a forensic suit on, a white forensic top to bottom forensic suit on, a mask, a whole lot. He's handcuffed to us, uh, and we took him out to where the body was, um, the deposition site. And the forensic guys recovered this lady's body, and he he was subsequently convicted, uh, as was his wife. F- from and, that, and that's a, you know that's a, that's a success because the family would have never have got the body back. Um, it's it, it, look, I would say it wouldn't I, but it was because we were good communicators that he actually gave the body out.
0: So from the moment of, I don't want to talk to you guys, to the moment of going to, showing you where the body is, how many hours or days is that?
1: Well, we, you, in this country, you can only keep someone for up to 36 hours, 24 hours, then a further 12 hours, and then they go into a um, warrant of detention. But it wasn't a long, long time. It was several hours before he actually told us. He'd obviously been playing on his mind for some time.
0: Was he, um, was he emotional? Was he crying? Was he in a state of, like... Uh, oh, yeah,
1: yeah, he was absolutely devastated because... His, his mother-in-law's dead and he's gone a her body um, yeah it's it, I, I mean some people will never crack and some people will they'll tell you but as I say the legal system in this country I think is a great legal system I think you know everybody's entitled to defense all those types of things
0: so so far one of, so far one of the things that I got from what you're saying is is if it's family you you negotiate with them based on conscience, because they're feeling it's guilty, quite, they're yeah. regretful. That's one of the ways.
1: Yeah, you try. I mean, you, sometimes you won't negotiate because they hated them so much that they're quite pleased that they've they've gone. Um, I mean, and, but they're all tragic. There's no, there are no good outcomes to any of these because somebody's died at the end of the day someone has died and they've died at somebody else's hand so i mean i've used the phrase before a murder is a murder is a murder it's the technique that is used in order to do that now in the uk our gun crime is far lower than the u.s we haven't got right to bear arms there's no second amendment is it second amendment yeah second but you
0: guys have have a lot of stabbing you guys got a lot of stabbing
1: correct yeah so that that is you know that is the um the weapon of choice at the moment, certainly within the gang culture and in some such society. The knife, and it could be from a modelling knife through to a bowie knife to a machete to whatever, but that is the way. But the point I make is, fortunately, guns aren't as prevalent here. So if a cop turns up to a a job where there is a gun that's been brandished, nine times out of ten, that weapon will be illegally held. Nobody will have a semi-automatic rifle. Not, they'll have a shotgun. They'll have a rifle for killing deer. But the fact is that most people, if they present that, and the armed police turn up, they've got a good chance of getting shot. Because, whereas I watched a video the other day, somebody in Oklahoma running around with a with a what he called a pistol. It looked like a rifle, and he's doing a Second Amendment audit. And I'm thinking, come on, man, this is this is ridiculous. We don't have that situation here. So, you know, for murders, where, where someone's been shot, yes, we have them where they have been shot. We have illegally held firearms, or we'll have a shotgun that's been sawn down, so it makes the barrel shorter, easier to use.
0: Um, What's the most disturbing case you, you were assigned? Most disturbing case, and maybe the most disturbing scene you've ever been a part of?
1: Um, I think the uh, murder of a lady down in a place called South End, which is down on the coast. Um, she split. She came over from Zimbabwe. They were they came over as uh, medical refugees. Nice family. Um, her husband decides that he's going to have a relationship with another woman, and the wife isn't very happy with this. So they split up, but he can't cope with the separation. So he goes to the local army navy store. Um, buys himself a machete, and he sits there and lovingly hones it, makes it as sharp as he possibly can. The lady takes the the children to school, and as she walks away from the school, he walks up behind her, and he severs her head. With one blow, takes her head off of her shoulders, with the exception of 2.5 centimetres, one inch of skin that's holding her head on. And I think that was quite a, that was quite a disturbing scene. When, when we got to the mortuary, because she'd been collected, taken to the mortuary, and when they were preparing for post-mortem, that was quite a disturbing sight. There are no good post-mortems. They're very interesting um, from, a, from a biological or a medical perspective, but none of them are t- particularly good. And I've been to quite a few, unfortunately.
0: What ended up happening to that fellow from Zimbabwe?
1: He got locked up got locked up for life. Now, that's the difference. Here, uh, life could be up to... Well, you can get a full life sentence. Um, The police officer that's featuring so heavily in the media at the moment, um, who will remain nameless, he's just got a full life sentence, and so he should. He killed that lady, um, Sarah Everard, and he deserves everything that he gets. Um, But life could go from 12 years to full life sentence. Very few people get a full life sentence.
0: Really? So
1: no, no one goes to the chair here.
0: Got it. Got it. What do you think about the chair? Do you agree with the chair or you, you think it's good that you guys no, don't have the chair?
1: No, I think uh, under some circumstances, and I'll get, I'll get shut down by some of my colleagues, but under some circumstances, yeah, I do. If what I do you, think that it's beyond reasonable doubt, if there's DNA, if there's never, ever any chance of it being anybody else, then do you know what? If you kill a cop in this country, then you face the consequences. That's my view. If you if you um, if you're a predatory paedophile and you've killed children and we can prove that you've killed them, you're no good to humanity.
0: So if that's, you kill
1: the—that's brutal. I make no apologies. No, for there's it, a lot of people
0: that bad. agree with you. You're not alone there. There's there's probably a few billion people that agree with you. It's not a, 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 a very small percentage of the population that would agree that wouldn't agree with you. But let, let me continue on a, on a different route. So many of these cases you've been a part of, you know, a lot of times in movies you see the good cop, bad cop. One guy comes in, says, hey, you want a cigarette? Here's some cigarette. Another guy comes in, tell me the truth. Hey, John, get out of here. Let me talk to you about, the, is that just movie stuff? Or did you guys use yeah. some of those? T- okay, got it. I figured. Yeah. A good, good
1: cop, bad cop can come in, in many different guises because I could be miserable anyway. I don't, need to, I don't need to be sitting opposite a suspect to be um, miserable or straight faced or, or what, what have you. They're not my friend. But my job, my job is to get them to talk to me. OK, so I will I would work within the law because the law is very clear around the way that you obtain confessions in this country. Um, and I would deal with them in a professional way. Most murder suspects in this country will have a lawyer present. There are very few that won't have legal representation. Um some will tell you they've done it. Some will tell you, you know, that they won't. I mean, you, you talked about talk about a disturbing one. There was um one that really sticks in my mind. And I remember, I remember more. It was a, a, a now Colchester, for your American um, listeners, is the oldest recorded town in Great Britain. Okay, it was there. For the Romans put it there. And this is a local town to us. It's a it's a military base. It's where a parachute regiment are. And there's Roman walls and there's Roman amphitheatres, and there's all that. It's, it's, it's a great place. This chap was convicted of fraud, of all things, and for which he got seven years in prison. He went to prison, and whilst he was there, he developed a toothache. So they sent him to local hospital in a cab. Okay, £300, $400 later, the guy still hasn't come out from his treatment. So the taxi driver, who's obviously very bright, thought, oh, this is a bit strange. He's not out. So they go and try and find him. In the meantime, he's gone from one county, which is in Kent, to Essex on a train. He's gone to his home in Colchester, where his wife was. And he stabs her to death in front of their baby children. And I say baby, they're toddlers. They're running around. And when we turned up at that scene, there were bloodstained footprints where the children had been running through their mother's blood. That is heartbreaking. That is absolutely heartbreaking. You know, what a cruel bastard. And those sorts of memories will stay with me for the rest of my days because it's, it's when your public service kicks in. It's when you're there to work for the victim. You're there to work for the family. You're there to make sure that justice is brought about and that person that took that lady's life goes to prison for a very, very long time.
0: Psychologically, what what do those things do to you? The, the the Do you have ever you have flashbacks? You have middle of the night you wake up with nightmares. Does it do anything like that to you? Because you know many people in your world tell me stories like that, but I wonder what it does to you.
1: I think it makes you more. Look, I like I love life. You know, it's what we're here for, isn't it? And I, mm-hmm. I love my grandchildren and I love everything. You know, that's wraps around me. But you become a bit of a fatalist. You understand that it's – was it Anthony Hopkins who said, you know, none of us get out of here alive? Mm -hmm. But it's the choices that you've made or the choices that somebody else has made for you. And do I I have dark moments? Yeah, I suppose I do. But I'm not – I don't hang on them. I remember. I remember every post-mortem that I ever went to. I remember standing next to a lady who had taken her own life on Christmas Eve in a mortuary and w- there was no viewing gallery, and the the uh, pathologist is undertaking a, a post mortem on her body. They stick with my in my mind, telling her family that we'd found the body of their their mother. You know, they are the things that stick with me forever. But that's not going to dent me as an individual because it's like saying I, I want I wanted to join, I want to go on a murder squad, but I never want to see their body. That just doesn't work, does it? It's like saying yeah. I want to be a traffic cop, but I never want to go to a road collision no, come on, do me a favor. It's not going yeah. to happen. makes either. sense. So you've got to be very pragmatic about it in your approach. Um, but you do say, that. I saw a guy, my, my first um, experience of, I'd, I'd experienced deaths before, but the first guy um, that I'd seen as a horrific death, um, he'd been decapitated in a, a road collision. He was in the road, he knelt up, and as he knelt up off the road, he had a few drinks, taxi came along and took him off, took his head off here. And that was that was horrendous, and I'd seen people that jumped in front of trains and then at, at five o'clock in the morning as the sun starts to come up in you know in June, July time, the sun comes up, and the birds are there picking up this poor chap's body bits you know that have been sprayed across the place. They stay with you. Does that affect me? Yeah, it does times I've been in tears. I remember i was um a family people think that I don't know the American culture I've got family in America and um I love, absolutely love the States, but it's like comparing apples with pears, and they're going to think I'm a soft bugger. You know, that's, that's the, but I, I was a family liaison officer for a, a, a young lady, and she'd been struck by a train, and it took two weeks to find her body. And I remember getting on a plane with my family going to Spain, flying down to Spain, and everybody's reading the national newspapers, and there she was on the front page of national newspapers, and we, we'd announced that we'd found her body. Yeah, have been all over the national media, the BBC, ITV, the whole thing. And I just sat there and cried because you just think, that kid's been in that – she's been dead for two weeks and we've only just found her body. So, yes, it does affect you. You dealt – I dealt with some lovely people from the victim's perspective. Um, I dealt with some really interesting people. I, bet. Um, I I dealt with some very interesting suspects because they've all got a story to tell.
0: Yeah, so uh, uh, let me let me ask you, in, in regards to the guy that took out his wife that was going to the dentist and the uh, taxi's like, where is he? And they go find and see what he did to his wife. Did you ever interview him and speak with him afterwards or no?
1: I, I didn't interview him for okay, that. I, I, got was on, I was the office manager for that particular job. Um, but obviously I worked very closely with the guys that, and girls that did do the interviews. Um,
0: did you? Did you like the reason why I ask is you know uh, Kuklinski's story, right? You know the the Richard Kuklinski story. Do you know who no, he I is? Don't. Okay. So who's the coldest person you sat in front of where you said this this person doesn't have a soul? Did you ever sit in front of somebody where you maybe were feared for your own life?
1: Um, did I ever fear for my own life? Not in interview, no. Um, I think the coldest man I've ever met was Stuart Campbell, and he's the man who killed Danielle Jones, and he's the guy that's still locked up. Um, I, I dealt with a lady called Julianne Taylor. She was pretty cold. She killed her husband, um, stabbed him through the heart in front of the washing machine. He was standing by the washing machine. She stabbed him through the heart, one single stab wound. She was pretty cold as well. And I think they've all, they're all, they've all got a story, I think they've all got a, a, an element of coldness I interviewed one guy who killed his mother because she had Alzheimer's, you know, and he wasn't cold he was absolutely distraught, but there was nobody that could deal with his mother you know, and he put a pillow across the face so but I would honestly, I can honestly say there's a guy called Martin Valentine who I didn't interview but I worked on the job he, he shot a man by the name of John Ward and John, he shot him through the throat and Martin Valentine, I'd previously dealt with about 18 years prior to this particular offense when he shot a security guard on an armed robbery. He's, he's pretty cold-hearted, and um, I would imagine he's still languishing in a jail.
0: Do you think these guys, I mean, do you psychoanalyze these guys? Or no, your job is just to ask questions? Are you...
1: My, my job to ask questions. That's it. That's we, not... we, we would be assessed by um, a psychologist for some of the jobs that we do to make sure that we weren't um affected by them that you know if you if you interviewed somebody who's got a celebrity status um i know i did that we we had to be assessed by a psychologist to make sure that we were the right people so that we didn't become starstruck
0: who who was a celebrity that you interviewed is, is... Uh,
1: a guy called michael barrymore he was um he he was he was mr saturday night in the uk and he was accused of um of killing somebody and it's never been proven, but yeah. what I interviewed. Him. Did he
0: get out? Did he, did, did he end up doing time or no? No, no,
1: no, 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 no. He was, um, it, there, there was no, no case to answer against him. And in fact, um, sadly that the man who's, who passed away, his father, who's been championing his, um, his cause has, has, um, recently passed away as well. But yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's an interesting job. It's fantastic. It's, it's a job that people pay money to do because, well, you look at all the all the crime series on the television, all the books or the best, you know, the best books, everything. Um, it's all about crime, is it? Crime and punishment, murders, whatever it may be. The, they are the best, best series on television.
0: It's amazing how and the most
1: interesting podcasts.
0: Yeah. People are fascinated by uh, 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 those stories from from the coldest people where, you know, who, are, are, who end up doing what they do to others, murdering others, do you, do you get a sense? You've been in this world for 30 years. It's either going to be a very simple no answer or it's going to be an answer with a lot of explanation. Do you think these folks, some of them are born cold the way they are? Or do you yes. think it's a life experience situation, just a lot of trauma, bad experience with parents, mom, dad, community, you know, all of the things that they experience? Or do you think some of them are just cold from the day they're born? They're born bad. You really believe that?
1: Yeah, I do believe that. I think that, you know, the kid that's pulling the legs off of a a spider today has got potential of becoming a killer in 20 years' time. And I really believe that because it's shown that um, sex offenders, for instance, they start with uh, animal cruelty, um, lighting small fires, things like that. And then it just escalates to more sadistic behaviour towards other human beings, and that's, you know, that's well documented. So I believe that, I do believe that some people are born bad. I believe that some kids are born into a situation that they make the wrong life choice, they'll go and commit a robbery, they're nice people, in you know, in essence, they're a nice person, but the fact is that they've got life life choices, they've gone and committed a robbery, Someone stepped out, they've shot them, they've stabbed them, whatever it may be. Did they go out of their way to it? I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm not there, but I do think there are some. But I think some people are definitely born bad.
0: How many total interviews have you done with murderers over the thirty years? What's what's the number? What do you think?
1: Um, I think in excess of forty, which okay. isn't a huge amount, but that's you know, it's quite a that's quite a lot. How many deaths have I been to? Innumerable. I mean, that's I, I couldn't tell you. I, I couldn't sit down and tell you, but yeah.
0: So, so what, what have you noticed, like, from, from that experience? What, what tales have you picked up? What, I mean, when I came in, you were talking to David, and he said, where are you from, Colombia? And I said, be careful. He's sizing you up because he's trying to learn <laughs> to see if you committed anything. I'm like, this guy's a professional question asker. But uh, what, have you caught any tales where, you know, you say, ooh, that reminds me of what the other guy did. And interesting. He just got uncomfortable. I must have triggered something here have you have you caught anything from body language from learning uh, by interviewing these people
1: yeah i mean there is an element of that and i think it's the way that they answer their questions and once they start lying because we have to prove lies as much as we need to find the truth you've got to prove a lie and you i think you instinctively know when they're telling lies certainly if you've got but they're all they're all there's similarities because you've got a dead person, you've got a post mortem, but they're all so different. You know, the techniques that you might use. Um, a man by the name of Roger Turnell, he he was murdered in his home. Um, gay male, traveled the world, um, and he was. They set lights to his house, they set, they set lights to his premises. And when they got into the post mortem, they discovered that his hyoid bone had been. Broken. Well, the only way you're going to do that is through strangulation. There's no, there's no other way that that's going to happen. Um, We've launched a full-on murder investigation. That family were completely different to the other families that I've dealt with. So you can't say the the difficult ones is where the suspect and you can't prove it is a family member, and you get allocated to them. And and the family liaison in this country is absolutely. I don't know what it's like in the states. I know I keep saying that, but the family liaison in this country is is a a skill on its own, and you will get placed, family there as an officer, you'll get placed with the family. But you could be sitting in a hotel room, because we've taken over the entire house, as a crime scene, you could be sitting in the hotel room with the suspect. And at some point, you might get that phone call from the boss to say, you've got to nick him now, you've got to arrest him, or her. Um, we think we've got enough now to arrest him for murder. Or they'll take, they'll extricate you, and they'll put somebody else in to do the arrest.
0: 30 years of doing this, what have you learned about uh, men? What have you learned about human beings? 30 years they're of doing evil. this.
1: They're evil. <laughs> they're, they're, they are, honestly, I didn't need to be in the police to work some of that out. But, you know, there are some evil people out there. And we use a phrase, I used it earlier on, are they mad or are they bad? You know, and there are some very, very bad people out there. And I don't think any of them are trustworthy, if I'm honest with you.
0: Anybody.
1: No, look. Why do it? That's a that's a real sweeping statement. But when, when you say something, oh, don't say anything, and you know full well you're feeding that in because they'll go and tell somebody. You start to get the rub around human nature, don't you? And that, most people don't do it for any bad reason, but yeah, you've got to you've got to be careful. You How many
0: try, times have you I'm been married? To... How many times have you been married? Once. And you're still married to the same person? Yeah. Yes, what, yes. what do you what do you do when you're talking to your wife and you're like, babe, I know you're bullshitting me. Do you call her out or do you just kind of like, <laughs> what do you do? What do you do when that happens? Do you just not say anything? She just got
1: back. Man, <laughs> she just got back in. <laughs> um, no,
0: I mean. I mean, um, you know I, what I'm saying. Sometimes.
1: With a my <laughs> <laughs> but, um,
0: Paul Mallory like, so. has been missing for two weeks.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, I've got, I've got two wonderful sons. And- but you
0: know what I'm saying? Like, what, what I'm saying is, like, you know, sometimes I'm, to, I, I'm in, the, I, I've been in sales for 20 years and I've had a lot of weird people in my life who are bipolar and personality disorders. And I've been forced to study body language because I don't have a choice. I had to know a person who's got seven different personalities every day. I had no idea who this person was going to be. So I'm like, who are you today? I'm like, okay, let me <laughs> pivot, right? But when, you, when you're a parent now and you've got kids and you're married and You know, nobody walks on water. When your kid lies to you, your spouse lies to you, somebody is maybe not wanting to tell you the whole story, and you know it and you read it, what do you do about it?
1: Try and keep a lid on it. (laughs) It's it's, it's difficult. difficult. The worst thing is when, you know, and I still find it now. I run a business now. I I, I run a company that um, we recruit cops. So when cops retire, we recruit them into the public or private sector. We've got a services site, so People have got their own businesses. They advertise us well, a few a few dollars a month. Um, but I still get to the point when someone says, if someone walks into your office and says, Do you know what, I've really messed up here, you can almost forgive them. You can actually say, okay, as long as they tell you the truth. Sure. But when they walk in and say, that wasn't. I never did it. And that's, you know, your first instinct is to go off like, we have a phrase here, go up like a tuppney rocket. And it's just... You, I, yeah, I can explode sometimes. I know you find that hard to believe, but I I have got uh, I can get quite animated. But I suppose that's, that's a passion.
0: Yeah, I, I, I guess the reason why I'm asking this question is like, you know, uh, uh, to be doing this business and you're still married to the same, how, how many years have you guys been married? You said yes. grandkids. So I'm assuming, okay, 30 years. I mean, you have to know for 30 years, you've been dealing with people who cheat, lie, steal, kill. Yep. And, and, yeah. and you're trying to come home and say, babe, how are you? Oh, my gosh, kids, daddy's here to play with you. How you doing? Did you do your homework? Of course I did my homework. You're like, you know, this kid didn't do his homework. So yeah. how, do you, how do you not bring your work home with what you do on a daily basis?
1: My kids knew, when I was on the major investigation side, my kids knew where I was by the news. Because... The county is the, the, the department that we were on was quite small, so if, if there was a homicide a murder, um, it would make the national news, uh, or the you know the local news most certainly. So my kids knew, and I was quite an errant father. I tell you, this this is a true story. My son um, plays field hockey. He's six foot five. He's he's a he's a giant now, but plays field hockey. I know that you don't play field hockey out there. There's guys don't play field hockey out there, and he got through to a national final. And I was in Washington, D.C. with the, at the FBI Academy um, doing a job there. I should have been at home. I should have been at home. I should have been watching my son play hockey. Um, and, you know, I'm doing it all by the phone. How did he get on? Yeah, he did really well. You know, you just think, oh, I missed out so much. But here's the other thing of that story. I traveled out there with a single pubic hair. Um, a young girl been been um, sexually assaulted. And a single pubic hair was found on her underwear. And we'd identified the suspect, DNA, the whole whole nine yards, but they brought into doubt how she collected this on her body. So we went and found a scientist at the FBI um, in Quantico. We went up there. Fascinating guy, a guy called Carrie Owen. You, you you couldn't wish to meet a nicer guy, but a more interesting. He's he's the man who found the um, the blood or the fibres on the on the break of the murder victim in in. in um, Texas when they dragged the black guy behind the truck mm. and, and he found microscope a microscopic piece of debris and they, and they linked that car to the murder of that guy absolutely he's fascinating. Anyway we, we go over there with a single pubic hair I wasn't allowed to fly down to my family holiday in Florida. My parents had a house in Florida at the time. I had to fly all the way back to the UK for one day and then fly back to the states after. The kid, by the way, who sexually assaulted the girl, he got found not guilty by the by the court by the jury. They they couldn't decide how that hair was found on her on the inside of her clothing attached to her body. He said that he'd urinated in a particular place. The hair had been secreted. It went onto her inside of her clothing. Blah blah blah. Anyway,
0: did, did, did the kid ever commit another crime later on in life, or no? Yeah,
1: he got locked up. He, in fact, within three days. He went out, committed a robbery, and he got locked up for five years. Got it. Good. Um, We get on a plane flying down to Florida, USA, into Charlotte, from Charlotte down to to Tampa. (coughs) Excuse me. Kids have got the FBI hats on. So this isn't long after Um, 9-11. So everyone's a bit twitchy around it. Guy walks up, sits to the kids, and the kids are about three rows back, but they're in double seats sitting on their own. We didn't want to sit with them. Have them sit with us. They were a pain, you know. They were just oh, can we have this? Can we have that? So, and the steward says, um, where'd you get the hatch from, guys? Because got FBI He Said, oh, my dad's just been out. Our dad's just been out to Quantico. Brings over a bottle of whiskey. Says, we welcome law enforcement on U.S.A. He's been my friend ever since. Ever since. Wow. And, I, and I still keep. He still lives in Charlotte, and I still keep in touch. That's
0: cool. That's cool.
1: Yeah, it is cool. It is cool. But, you know, we're lucky. Police, police, guys and girls are lucky. It is a great job. Despite the popular media giving them a kick in on a regular basis, some of it is deserved, some of it's not. Um, It's still a great job.
0: Great job. It's still a great job. So, you know, I would be so curious to know, who was the first person in your family that became a cop?
1: So, um, my grandmother's uncle left Ireland, went to New York and became a flatfoot up there. That was in about 1928, 20, something like that. Um, my, I had another uncle who joined the police service in 1934. In fact, I've still got family in the police today. My nephew's still serving um, as a civilian member of staff for the police service, and I've still got family in the Irish police, in the Garda. So, and it's, it's been like that since, let's say, at least 1934.
0: The only reason I said that is because whoever was the first person probably sold the career as so honorable and great that others wanted to follow it. Because, you know, there, 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 there has to be, you know, sometimes uh, I have a friend of mine, him and I joined the Army together. We got out. Everybody was asking me, how was the Army? Best decision I made in my life. They asked him, how was the Army? Worst decision I made in my life, Right. And that guy's kids are probably never going to want to serve the military. If my kids want to join the military, I'm okay with it because the military really shaped uh, uh, my life in a big way. Yeah, yeah so absolutely. it's interesting hearing you say good things about the life of being a cop.
1: Well, well Gladys Knight, I mean, I'm, I'm really into my music, but she what was it She said, could it be that it was all so very simple then or has time rewritten every line? And if we had the chance to do it all again, tell me, would we, could we? And yeah, I would. If I started again tomorrow, I would go back and join the police service. It is the greatest job that I've ever, ever done.
0: Well, Paul, i got to tell you, I've enjoyed talking to you, man. I, th- this has been really uh, 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 insightful, disturbing at the same time with some of the stories, uh, uh, re- relieved to know that some folks got justice, uh, and uh, uh, grateful that some people like yourself choose to uh, get into the profession that you're in because it's so necessary. And I res- respect the folks in your world who do the good job, do, 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 do it the right way because the world without you would be a very difficult world and very painful for many people out there. So having said that, thank you so much for being a guest on Valuetainment. Thank
1: you, sir. It's been absolutely brilliant to meet you. And uh, when I'm down in Florida, I'll take you for a warm beer somewhere. Oh no, you drink cold beers down there. Come
0: on right? down. It's all good. Come on down. I'd love to entertain you. I'll host you if you're down here. You just let me know.
1: I will be there. I've got friends and and clients down there. I look forward to it. And same goes. When you're in London, I've got some very swanky places that I can take you to.
0: Swanky places. I'm curious to see some swanky places. Yeah.
1: Well, I I don't know if it's... I'm a volunteer at the Tower of London. Have you been to England?
0: I've been to England. I've been to London. I don't know if I've been to the Tower of London. I don't think I have.
1: Well, every Tuesday night, um, they... I'm there and they do a thing called the Ceremony of the Keys where they lock the tower up and they have done for the past 700 years. And if you want to come, I'll take you there as my guest.
0: I'd love to. I'd love, It's a beautiful city. I have great experience when I go there. So once again, thank you so much. Take care of yourself. Nice to see you. Take care. Bye-bye. So thoughts. Would you want his job? Would you want to do what he does? Could you do what he does? Some of those stories, very dark stories, right? Do you agree with them that some people are born evil? That was a very interesting answer that he gave. Comment below. If you enjoyed this interview, you may also in, uh, enjoy the interview with the detective I did who was working on the Biggie and Tupac case. Greg Kading, if you've never seen that one before, probably one of the most interesting interviews I've ever done because I grew up listening to those two guys and we had all the different potential uh, p- people involved in the murder. And you see how it goes about pointing at who could have been behind the murder of Biggie and Tupac. If you've never seen that, it would be very entertaining. Click here to watch that. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.